0: Psalm chapter 1. You can turn there in your Bibles. This is the Word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree. knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we're thankful that you have spoken to us, your people, through your Spirit in the Scriptures. And we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear the truth and hearts to love the truth, would give us wills to obey the truth, and as we think about Psalm 1, our Highest prayer is that we would see Jesus high and lifted up. We pray these things in His name. Amen. At some point in time, you've probably heard an old Hindu parable. I don't think many of you would identify as Hindus, but you've probably heard this old Hindu parable about a group of blind men who encountered an elephant. They can't see the entirety of what the elephant is, but each man touches one part of the elephant, and one of the blind men uh, touches the side of the elephant, and he walks away saying, Elephants are like brick walls. They're strong, and they're sturdy. And The second man touches the tusk of the elephant, and he says, No, elephants are like snakes. Uh, They move, and they're strong, and there's a muscle there. Uh, another one of the blind men touches the tail of the elephant. And he says, no, elephants are like ropes, small, little, tiny ropes. And yet another man touches the ear of the elephant. And he says, I don't know what you guys are talking about, but clearly elephants are like fabric, rough, uh, thick fabric. And still uh, another man, the fifth man, uh, touches the tusk of the elephant and he says no I'm quite certain that elephants are like a spear smooth long sharp and the point of the parable in Hindu cosmology is simply to say that everything is God and God is everything and you experience God in one way and I experience God in another way. And within Hinduism, the reason that there are so many, literally millions of gods, is that the one sort of cosmic force out there is just revealing himself to different people in different times, in different places, in different ways. If you haven't heard that parable, you've probably heard somebody use a similar Hindu parable where they talk about a mountain that has many paths up the mountain, but ultimately there's only one summit, and if you just will get on a path and stay on it long enough, you will end up there at the summit and again the point is to say that it doesn't matter which religion you follow it doesn't matter if you worship Krishna or Shiva or whatever manifestation of the deity within the Hindu pantheon that you want to worship it really doesn't matter just pick one pick an approach pick a path pick a part of the elephant pursue that as best you can and in the end you'll find out that you had connected with the one true God now that idea fits well within he, uh, Hindu cosmology It also fits well in the United States of America, in a postmodern anti-truth culture that just wants to say, you have yours, I'll have mine, we can agree to disagree, but we can be nice to each other, nobody has to say anything hateful about the truth or lies about what's real and about what's fake, and we'll all just find out that we were talking about the same thing in the end. By way of contrast, the Bible presents truth as a binary option. There is something that is true, which means that there is something that is false. And just to give you a few examples of how the Bible speaks about this, the Bible speaks about gates, wide gates and narrow gates. One leads to life, one leads to death. The Bible speaks about trees. It describes people as trees. Jesus does that, and he says there are good trees and there are bad trees. Good and bad. Jesus speaks about people who have genuine faith and people who have phony faith. The Apostle Paul speaks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. One leads to life, one leads to death. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, says there's really only two options. You can build your life upon the Word of God, which is like building it on a rock. Or you cannot build it on the Word of God, and that's like building it on the sand. And one will give you security and stability for all eternity, and the other will crumble not only in this life, but certainly in the next life. Psalm 1 fits well, not with a Hindu cosmology, not with a postmodern American worldview, but it fits well within the biblical worldview. And the big idea of Psalm 1 is really quite simple. There's only two types of people and there's only two ways to live. There's only two types of people and there's only two ways to live. We're going to look at Psalm 1 this morning. We're going to compare and contrast these two types of people that are described here. We're going to think about these two ways of living. If we come to the end of Psalm 1 and we do it rightly, our focus will not be on ourselves. And our focus will not be on the psalmist, but our focus will be on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's jump in and let's think about these two types of people. First, there's the righteous. The righteous, And the first thing the psalmist tells us about the righteous person is that the righteous person is blessed. The righteous person is blessed. Now I'm going to be honest with you. Within Christian circles, that's a loaded word. And it's loaded because people use that word in all sorts of different ways. I have some charismatic friends who, if you ask them, Hey, how are you doing? They would respond almost every single time, I'm blessed and highly favored. And what they mean by that, if you really dig down deep, not with anyone who says that, but with some people who say that, what they mean is, God has just blessed my life in such an amazing way, I don't have any problems or troubles or hardships, everything is just nice, blessed. Our staff read a book not too long ago by a man named Eugene Peterson, and he talked a lot in that book about the idea of blessing within the book of Psalms. He made the argument, I think he's right, that fundamental to the biblical idea of blessing in the Scriptures, in the book of Psalms, is the idea of happiness. Happiness. Now, it's probably not what some of you imagined The fundamental biblical idea of blessing would be happiness. Some of you rightly have sort of a theological radar that pings and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, happiness, happiness. The world chases happiness. Aren't we supposed to chase holiness? And maybe you've heard people say something to the effect of God cares more about your holiness than he cares about your happiness. And we say that sort of thing because the world believes and the world leads us to believe that we can pursue happiness in any way that we see fit and no one has the right to tell us that's a bad way to pursue happiness. And so what we end up saying is, God cares more about your holiness than your happiness, which implies that you can't be holy and happy at the same time, that you've got to make a choice. Do you want to be holy or do you want to be happy? Because if you're going to be holy, it's going to be miserable. If you want to be happy, probably won't be holy. You know what the Bible actually says? The Bible actually says God cares about your happiness. And He cares about your holiness. And God knows that true happiness in your life, not temporary stuff, not the fleeting stuff, not the here today, gone tomorrow stuff, but true happiness in your life, true blessing in your life is tied to holiness. It's this idea of blessing. This righteous person is blessed. There was a French physicist and mathematician and philosopher. His name was Blaise Pascal. I don't know where he got his hair done, but I want to go. Amazing hair for this Frenchman. He said something interesting about happiness. I just want to read you what he said. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man wanting to be happy. I would submit to you that you have never met a person on this earth who didn't want to be happy. I would suggest to you that every person you interact with over this next week has a desire to be happy, to experience this blessing that the psalmist is talking about. Now, they may be pursuing it wrongly. They may think that it's not possible to find this sort of happiness with the holiness that the Bible calls us to, but God doesn't frown upon happiness. God wants his people to experience happiness, not as the world might give it, but as he might give it through his blessing. So the righteous are blessed. Number two, the righteous delight in God's law. They delight in God's law. Verse one says, blessed is the man. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He delights in God's word. Look, we just spent the last part of last year working through Psalm 119. And repeatedly the psalmist told us that God's people are called to delight in His Word. Yes, we're called to read it and to study it and to memorize it and to meditate on it. The Bible is telling you that when all of those things take place in your life with some measure of consistency, the outcome is that you will delight in God's Word. The righteous person loves God's Word. They love to hear it. They love to think about it. They love to talk about it. They delight in it. Let me just give you two pastoral notes on this point before we move on and talk about the righteous uh, in a few more ways. Two notes from your pastor. It's not uncommon that I talk with folks who are struggling with the assurance of their salvation. They're wrestling with whether or not they know the Lord or whether or not the Lord knows them, and they're fearful and they're a bit anxious and they're a bit uncertain. There's lots of things that you might talk about with a person who's struggling with that. But one of the things I find myself bringing up regularly is this issue or this question of delighting in God's word. You know, the Apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians and he says, To those who are lost, the word of the cross is folly. They don't delight in it. They laugh at it. But to those of us who are being saved, the word of the gospel, the truth of the gospel is the wisdom of God and it is the power of God in our lives to salvation. Do you love the truth of the gospel or do you laugh at the truth of the gospel? Paul in Corinthians, and I think the psalmist would agree, just sort of lays that out as a a dividing line, as a test case to say, you're wrestling with salvation, you're wrestling with this question of grace, you're wrestling with your relationship with the Lord. Let's just step back and let's just say, when you hear the truth about Jesus, when you hear the truth of God's Word proclaimed, do you laugh at it and despise it and mock it, or do you love it? And do you delight in it? One more point, just a a pastoral comment. Sometimes I'm afraid Christians do not commit themselves to reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on God's Word because they don't delight in it. And they sit around and they're waiting for some sort of Disney-like feeling to overtake them that will then motivate them to read, Study, meditate, and memorize. I think about a conversation I had with a lady in my church in Oklahoma. I'll be honest with you. uh, What she said was not good, but it was refreshingly honest. We had been talking about reading the Bible and being faithful in this discipline. And in a personal conversation, she looked at me, and you know what she said? Just in a moment of complete honesty, she said, I don't like reading the Bible. I don't delight in it. I don't love it. I hear you talk about it. I agree with what you're saying. I don't question these things. When it comes to actually reading, I don't delight in it. She was waiting for some sort of feeling to motivate her obedience. But guess what? In the Bible, it's not our feelings that motivates our obedience, it's our obedience that shapes our feelings. And so I'll be honest with you. Just like this woman was honest with me, there will be times in your life, maybe you're in this season of life right now, where you would never look at me in the face and say, I don't like reading the Bible. But if you're honest, you would say, yeah, I don't like doing it. I don't feel the pull to it, the draw to it. I'm not being faithful in it because I don't feel like I want to do that. And my advice to you is to do it anyway, to read it to tie yourself to the Word of God, to study it, to think about it, to memorize it, to build things into your life, into your day that will connect you with the Word of God and to do it consistently and to do it faithfully and to watch and to wait and to pray and ask God to change your heart and ask God to make you a person who delights in His Word. I think the Lord will honor that obedience. So the righteous are blessed and they delight in God's law. Number three, they are alive spiritually they're alive you notice how the psalmist describes him in verse 3 the righteous person he's like a tree now i understand you live in odessa texas so we don't have a lot of trees and every winter it seems like about half of them die you drive up and down neighborhoods and you see dead tree dead tree and right now they all look dead but in a few weeks spring will bloom and you'll say that one's alive that one's dead We're not talking about the dead ones. We're talking about the living ones. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, and it yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Now, we'll set this in contrast to the wicked in just a moment, but let's just note right now that the righteous person is alive, have spiritual life. Number four. The righteous are known by God. They're known by God. Psalm 1.6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows the way of the righteous. What does that mean? The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Does that mean that if we were to ask the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, to be a contestant on jeopardy, and your life were to appear as one of the categories? Does this mean that he would know all of the things about you? He would just roll right through that list and say, oh, I know that, and I know that, and I know that, I know that, I know this date, I know this fact, I know this piece of information. Well, it does mean that. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 139, but it describes how intimately God knows all of us. It talks about the Lord knitting us together in our mother's womb. Talks about the Lord knowing every word of our mouth before our vocal cords ever vibrate. Talks about the Lord numbering and knowing all of our days before we ever live them. Of course, He knows everything about you. But this particular word in Psalm 1, verse 6 the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's the same Hebrew word you will find in Genesis 4.1 when the Bible says Adam knew his wife. He knew her. That doesn't mean he knew about her. It means he knew her in a personal, intimate, genuine way. That's what the psalmist is saying. He's not just saying that the Lord knows about you, that the Lord could pass a test about the facts of your life. But he's saying that he knows you. He knows the righteous person. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about God foreknowing people. You can read it in Romans 8. Paul is not making the argument that God knows in advance every detail about you. That's true. But it's not his point in Romans 8. His point in Romans 8 is that before you knew him, he knew you. He knows his people. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now let's talk about the wicked. Two two ways to live, two types of people. The wicked. Number one, they progress in sin. Sometimes we use the word progress in a positive sense like you're advancing in a positive way. We don't mean it in a positive way here. We just mean it in terms of there is a progression of sin that plays out in their life. They start in one place, but they move to another place. So when you read in Psalm 1 in verse 1 about these people who are walking and standing and sitting, most Bible scholars agree that what the psalmist is talking about is the ancient gates of an ancient city. If you were to go back in time... You were know, To visit an ancient city, a walled city with gates, one of the things you would find that would be different from our culture is that city hall, town hall, the seat of government would not be located in some sort of building with a clock and a tower up in the middle of town. It would be located in the gates. If you wanted to be part of official business and the happenings of a city and the goings on and the, the people in power, you would go to the gates. That's where the business would be done. That's where the administrative functions of government would take place. And believe it or not, ancient sources tell us that most of the time the gates were a place of corruption. Is that hard for you to believe? Politicians, corruption. I I know it's a stretch, just trust me, in the ancient world, these politicians, these businessmen, these movers and shakers meeting in the gates, they were known for their corruption, for their under-the-table dealings, for their dishonesty. And the psalmist is talking about that setting and he notes a progression. The progression is pretty simple, it goes from walking to standing to sitting. So the idea first is that you're just walking through the gates. You're not there with the rest of them. You're just sort of passing through. After all, they're the gates. You have to go in and out of the city. You're just passing through. As you pass through, you catch wind of this or that. You hear a conversation. You maybe stop to linger for a moment. But you're walking and you're passing through and you're giving some consideration to what's happening in the gates. But before long, you find yourself not just walking through the gates but doing what? Now you're standing in the gates. Now you're stationary. And you're a little bit more engaged. You may not be part of this wicked cabal of leaders and influencers, but you're there, you're associating with them, you're standing, you're taking it all in. And before long, what happens? You're sitting. First you're walking in the council of the wicked, then you're standing in the way of sinners, and eventually you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. You're completely comfortable there in the city gates. You're comfortable with the wicked. You're comfortable with the sinners. You're comfortable with the scoffers. You're comfortable with all of these people because you're one of them. That's the progression of sin in our lives. We talked about this briefly last night at our marriage conference. Left unchecked in your life, sin will always spread like a cancer. Left unchecked in your life, Sin will always spread like a cancer. The devil will tell you, keep it small. Keep it secret. Keep it hidden. Keep it tucked away. You have a password on your phone. No one will see. No one will know. It's just you and this one other person. Small. It will always grow. There will always be this progression from walking to standing to sitting. Again, in light of the fact that we had a marriage conference this weekend, let's just take the sin of adultery as an example. I I hesitate to say that this never happens, but I think most of the time a husband or a wife does not wake up one day out of the clear blue and say to himself or herself, seems like a good day for an affair. It's usually not how it happens. Usually doesn't start with sitting. It usually starts with walking. You think about it. You daydream about it. You read articles online about it. You talk to a trusted friend about it. You give consideration to it. You entertain it in your mind. Rather than meditating on the scriptures, you meditate on the possibility of sin. And before long, you're no longer walking, but you're standing. You've made some more concrete steps to initiate a relationship with this person. It's just texting, of course. It wouldn't go beyond texting. Everyone's entitled to have friends, aren't they? We're just texting. We're just having a conversation. You're putting yourselves in situations, either digitally or in real life, where you could be compromised. And before long, you're sitting in the mess of it. We could trace that through in your life with any number of sins. Sin will never stay small in your life. It will never stay isolated in your life. The devil will convince you that you can control it. You can manage it. It won't go beyond a certain step. And he knows that that's not how sin works. There is always a progression. And the psalmist sees it. He acknowledges it. If you want to trace this out in the Old Testament, I'll give you just one example. You can look this up on your own. You can look at the story of a man named Lot. Lot. Remember, he was related to Abraham. Remember, they separated because the land was too full, and Lot said, I'll go over there. I'll go in this direction. And the Bible says that Lot went and pitched his tents in the area of Sodom. He didn't move to Sodom. Who in the world would move to Sodom? But the farmland was nice. So he just went and he pitched his tents, not in the city, but just in that general vicinity. You know, the next time you read about Lot, do you know what he's doing? He's doing business in the gates of Sodom. He hasn't moved there yet, but he's doing business there. I'm just going to pitch my tents over there. Well, I'm just going to do business there. You know what's happening the third time we read about him? He is living in the city and he's immersed himself in the mess. Walking, standing, sitting. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The Puritans were 100% right. They weren't just being puritanical. They were 100% right when they said that the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. I promise you that will be true in your life. Delighting in the Word of God and meditating on it day and night will keep you from sin or sin, left unchecked, will grow and spread like a cancer And it will keep you from the word of God. Jesus modeled this, did he not? In his temptation in the wilderness. Three times. It's written. It's written. It's written. He turned to the word of God. The word of God that he delighted in. The word of God that the spirit inspired. And he found resolve. But the wicked are not so they progress in sin. Number two, the wicked are dead. The contrast is striking, and if in Odessa we have trouble with the image of a tree planted by streams of water yielding its fruit in its season, we can understand this idea of chaff, the wicked, verse 4, are not so, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. What he's talking about is a grain harvest and you would separate the wheat from the chaff and you would throw it up and the grain would fall and the wheat would blow off. If you want a West Texas image of that, just go mow your lawn this afternoon. And take that dead Bermuda and just toss it into the wind and it just blows away. It's dead. That's what the wicked are like. The righteous person is like this tree by the stream with its fruit and its leaves, it's alive, and the wicked are like chaff that is blown away in the wind. Don't ever forget that the biggest problem with sin in your life and in my life, in all of our lives, it's not that it makes us bad, it's that it makes us dead. The wages of sin is badness. The wages of sin is death. Sin makes us dead. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the desires of your flesh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sin makes us dead. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, when you were dead, made you alive. We've talked about that miracle recently. It's the miracle of regeneration. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of dead sinners. Where there is death, he brings life. So the wicked progress in sin. The wicked are dead. Number three, the wicked will perish in the judgment. Let's be careful with our grammar here. Verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That does not mean that wicked people won't stand before God to face judgment. It means when they stand before God for judgment, they won't stand. They'll perish. They'll fall. What was the devil's first lie in the book of Genesis? If you eat of this tree, you will not die. The devil has been telling that lie to people for millennia. You won't die. You won't die. Now, look, people know from experience at this point that physically we're going to die, but the devil still tells this lie you're not going to die. You're not going to die. You're going to die physically, and you go to heaven. Heaven's a place where all your favorite stuff is, all the best stuff you like in this world. It'll be there in heaven. You die here. That's where you go. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. The world is filled with people who think they will never die spiritually. I know there's a few sensitive souls, a few anxious folks who struggle with this question of life and death and the judgment, and I think that's probably most of the time God's Spirit bringing conviction to a person's life. But the vast majority of people just live with this idea, I live in this world, I'll go to the next, I'll be there, it'll be wonderful, you will not die. And the psalmist says, you know, there's two ways that this could go. Either the Lord will know the way of the righteous, or the way of the wicked will perish. Two ways. Two ways. There was a poet who lived from 1874 to 1963. His name was Robert Frost, American poet. Uh, best I can tell, not a believer. Uh, did not write what we would maybe think of as Christian poetry, but he's written a poem that you probably heard of. It's called The Road Not Taken. There's a line in that poem where Frost says, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. You've probably seen it hanging on a poster in the wall of an office or somebody shared it with a nice picture of the forest in two paths and uh, the little quip down at the bottom. And we use it for all sorts of things and all sorts of contexts. Again, I don't think Frost was a believer. I don't think he was trying to teach theology in this poem or certainly biblical theology. But what he said has a unique applicability to Psalm 1. When you think about a road less traveled, Two types of people, two ways to lead your life, the righteous and the wicked. What we're talking about in Psalm 1 when you think about the righteous is a road that has been traveled by exactly one person, just one, not a few, just one. Who is this righteous man of Psalm 1? Is it you? Is it your pastor? Is it your grandmother? The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The Bible says that none of us are righteous, no, not a single one. It's pretty clear in Romans 3. There are none righteous, no, not one. And Romans 3 is quoting the book of Psalms. It says it twice in the book of Psalms 14 and 53. There are none righteous, no, not one. We've all walked in the counsel of the wicked. We've all stood in the way of sinners. We all, at some point in time, sat in the seat of scoffers. We're all, if we're honest with ourselves, have failed to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate on it day and night, to be like this tree planted by the streams of of water. Maybe it's Abraham. The Bible says Abraham was counted righteous by God. Maybe Abraham is this righteous man. But Abraham spent a good part of his life worshiping idols. He lied about his wife and he put her in great danger. It's not Abraham. Maybe it's Moses. Moses is described as God's friend. Maybe Moses is this righteous man. But if you've read the story of Moses, you know it can't be Moses. He murdered a man in Egypt. And then at the end of his life, he failed to uphold the Lord as holy at the the waters of Meribah. It's not Moses. Maybe it's David, man after God's own heart, a man guilty of adultery, walking, standing, sitting, a man guilty of murder. Who's the righteous man of Psalm 1? I hope you know that it's Jesus, the Messiah of Psalm 2. This is a road that's been traveled by one man, Jesus of Nazareth who is the Messiah, the anointed one, that we read about earlier in Psalm 2. You may know that in ancient Hebrew tradition, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are one psalm. They number the psalms differently. It's the same wording, it's the same material, but they take Psalm 1 and they take Psalm 2 and they mash them together. We don't do this in English Bibles, and there's a backstory for that, but I think it's a helpful thing to remember that in the Hebrew imagination, Psalm 1 goes with Psalm 2. So just think about these two psalms as they might fit together. Psalm 1 says, here's a blessing. A blessing is promised for the righteous person. And there's a warning issued to the wicked person. And as you keep reading down to Psalm 2, we read about nations raging, peoples plotting, kings setting themselves against the anointed, and we say, who are these horrible people? was the wicked described up in Psalm 1. That's who he's talking about. And they don't want to be controlled. They don't want to be limited. They don't want anyone to rule over them. The one who sits in the heaven laughs at them. Their rebellion is almost comical. Like these people are going to rebel against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. Verse 6 speaks about this anointed Messiah being a king. Verse 7 speaks about this anointed Messiah being a son, a begotten, not born, a begotten son. Verse 8 speaks about this Messiah receiving the nations. Verse 9 speaks about this Messiah judging the nations. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish. You saw that word in Psalm 1. The way of the wicked will perish. Be warned lest you perish in his way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Notice how it ends with a beautiful bookend that goes all the way back to Psalm one: Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. You start off in Psalm 1 and you come through it honestly. You say, I am not the righteous person described in Psalm 1. Only Jesus is the righteous person described in Psalm 1. And although I have foregone the blessing promised in Psalm 1.1, there is a way to receive it. There is one way to receive it. And it's by taking refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Confessed your sin to Almighty God and fled to him for life. We pray that you would do it today. Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you for the Psalms and we thank you for the ways, the many ways in which the Psalms point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're fooling ourselves if we think that we have any righteousness before you. Lord, we see ourselves in the place of the wicked in Psalm 1. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection, for his spirit who was sent to give us life when we were dead, and for the promise of the gospel that if we will repent of our sin and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We can have life, eternal life. We can know blessing. Father, we pray for those who are here this morning who have never put their faith in the Lord Jesus, and we pray that your grace would be at work in them to draw them to Jesus even today. Father, those of us who have experienced your grace and have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, know that you know us. You knew us long before we knew you. You loved us when we were unworthy and unlovable, and you've brought us into your family. You've welcomed us as children. You've given us the hope of heaven. We thank you for that, and as your people, we want to thank you for the hope that we have. So Lord, as we sing, we pray that you would be honored, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.